0: Since we are uh, talking to the producer or the, the grower or the maker, you have so much more respect for the produce. There's nothing better than cooking for those makers and um, we get so much feedback from them as well. And it, it is, it, it's almost nurturing in the sense of knowing that you're, you know, like you're paying respect to produce.
1: This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Local, seasonal and sustainable food is central to many regional restaurants and for Trevor Perkins, a nose to tail approach when it comes to meat and fish preparation is not only at the core of his local sustainability ethos, it's just the tip of the iceberg too. Trevor, how are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. It's great to get you on the show. You've got an amazing little restaurant there that a lot of people in the industry talk about. Um, How are things going?
0: Yeah, very good. It's, it's, uh, well, look, we've been here for about close to seven years now and it's, yeah, it, it just feels like it always was, you know, yeah, it's really good.
1: It's so, uh, it's known as or referred to as a regional restaurant, but you're only a hop, skip and jump away from Melbourne. Tell us a little bit about where you are. We're just, uh, just
0: uh, about an hour and 20 uh, drive just down the M1, um, just to, uh, to uh, Warrigal, the local town. And then just probably five minutes heading up towards Currumburra and the Currumburra Road, uh, just, we've got a nice little rural setting here overlooking the Wild Dog Vineyard. Um, just a, it, it feels like country, even though it's so close to the CBD, it's uh, just overlooking nice rolling hills and vineyard.
1: so. Why did you choose that location?
0: It was, going back, uh, I've had another restaurant in, locally in town and uh, took a bit of, of a break once I sold that and. I uh, started making some wine with um, B- Bill Downey and um, Patrick Sullivan, and just kind of um, kicking around the vineyards. And uh, so it happened that the lease come available for this site here, and then I was with Bill at the time and inquired what they were doing with the restaurant, and that seemed it was up for lease as well. So, kind of seemed to be the the, the perfect um, timing in the sense of uh, yeah. Um, like, um, going into the or working around the vineyard with um, and looking at that side and yeah it just it's actually uh, a, a bit of a life change for me because yeah even working um, with the the guys from the um, in, in the wine making and seeing that side but also um, going back to almost farm produce and looking at the region so
1: tell us a little bit about the region you've got a great connection with the growers of the region do you have any sort of stories of um, sort of what's growing there and what you do with?
0: Yeah, it's, I grew up down here in Gippsland, so actually, um, like the, it's amazing area for produce, and it's, it's probably known as the the food bowl of Victoria. And, and so, the connection with the farm is probably the um, the more important thing that I've um, slowly grown uh, relationship with them over over time. So it's taken a long time to um, to do that. So uh, what when i got back from I, I lived in melbourne for a little while uh so started uh there was actually a local competition down here was um uh to actually write up a dish and source all the local ingredients and the wine to pair it and then the finalist got to cook off at, at uh, a local uh, food show so that kind of got me started uh, that um, was early days and then but it, it kind of yeah like once you start researching to to design a dish a regional dish uh and then tapping into all the ingredients and then yeah to open up a restaurant and then to pretty much go through the same process every day and talk to new suppliers and build build that relationship with them so some of the suppliers i've had now going back you know 11 12 years so even longer so yeah
1: it's fascinating sort of delving into that world of wine and then into the restaurant, um, is there is there a sort of an urge or a need for you to to cook according to sort of the wine that's produced?
0: It's uh, it's actually, as you know, like um, with wine, there's, you yeah, know, you're kind of drawn to uh, what you like in, in a wine. So uh, particularly down here, um, the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay is what the region's really known for, but there are so many other grape varietals, but... Uh, uh, being a cool climate its the wines are uh, shown like a, a lot lighter and um, brighter than you know, you know probably you know, your other um, bigger and bolder regions for for their wines so i think that that definitely has an influence on the style of food that we pair but also cook, cook with them as well. So.
1: You mentioned the uh, wonderful producers and the connections that you've been fostering for a while now. Do you have any stories of uh, pig farmers and uh, pig producers that you connect with?
0: Yeah, it's, oh, I've got so many stories. <laughs> um, like, we've, yeah, we've had uh, quite a few come and go over the years, but, uh, look, it's uh, one of the hardest probably um, – uh, like farmers down here because probably the abattoirs are so far away in all and Laverton. but um stories uh actually probably one of the ones that comes close my uh, my dad's a butcher by trade and um we've probably I think it's about 16 70 years 17 years ago we started a little salami group and a, Um, just a family and friends kind of group yeah it's actually got its own branding and its name just it's um it's so it's called the inner circle and uh it kind of started with me dad uh we're just playing around and um we we made some salamis we're talking probably 19 years ago and then we started doing like a colo, and then we thought okay let's do a whole pig and and then we've got lots of friends in the family of different uh, cultures and nationalities that uh, we started trying some of their recipes that they, they gave to us. And so we set up this little group where it's, um, and I've had a lot of my hospo chef friends come along to it over the years as well. And it's become a little feature in the year. So we, it's just an annual salami weekend where we raise our own pigs, but we've also saw some local farms to raise pigs for us as well. And and. Yeah, it's a three-day festival where we kind of break it down and um, and every year it kind of changes the format a little bit. But it's, um, yeah, but, but traditionally it's uh, the salami weekend, so lots of salami and um, other uh, small goods. So, but yeah, uh, that's probably um, some of the stories and memories I have of um, farming, as, um, uh, even raising pigs and um, going through the whole process of um, yeah, whether it's slaughtering and using the whole animal from nose to tail. So I think that started off a, a very early days and that's kind of followed through to Hoggett today. So yeah.
1: What's what's your favorite part of that sort of uh, ritual, that salami making sort of weekend? Is there an aspect of it that you really like to sink your teeth into?
0: It's I, I ask thought of that this the other day and it's it's like um, <laughs> it's like when you go on holidays as such like you're looking forward to the the whole lead up to it and the whole journey so it's actually uh like it might be the raising of those pigs and feeding them and checking on them and you know like and building up to the the time and then it's the whole process of um the ingredients um and the the processes and the pro- the produce in the end, but I think sometimes the the journey is so much more fulfilling than the finished product as such. But it's a uh, yeah, it's um, but some of the, some of the parts are like uh, are like um, going back through my career as well. as like making black pudding from scratch and uh, or even you know uh, the the whole head um, making a brawn and going through those processes as well that you you don't get to do all the time. So it's actually um, and it, it really brings it back to, oh, what is it, uh, old traditional techniques that kind of, that's what I, I love about my, my job as well is that um, it's, yeah, it, it's,
1: it's got so much substance and um, feeling to actually producing those products as well. You mentioned that part of the process was raising the pigs. What what, what do you need from a pig? In, you know, in the at the end product when you're about to make the salamis, like in regard to fat content and size, and what are you sort of aiming for?
0: Yeah, look, uh, fat as uh, like uh, it's um, the the pork product itself. Like pork is the best um, for any kind of charcuterie. So, um, if the fig, pigs are a little bit fatter, I, I'm not. <laughs> I actually so definitely good fat fat. But the back fat is kind of so prized in in our kitchen, um, particularly off the back of the neck, that we can use it to, you know, lightly smoke and use it to line a terrine or or even to hand-dice and put through the salami. So it's uh, definitely fat content. Um, If you don't have the fat, it's very hard to make uh, good
1: charcuterie. So, yeah. Well, I want to explore what you're doing in the kitchen there at Hoggett uh, shortly, but take us back to when you were young. Um, what sort of role did food play for you growing up?
0: Yeah, look, I, I grew up in Maui, um, which is probably half an hour from the restaurant. Um, and I, I actually, my family's quite working, uh, like when I grew up, very much working family. So most weekends, we actually jumped in the full drive and went camping or um, like surf fishing or um, uh you know uh saltwater fishing or hunting or trapping, so outdoors was a really big thing for us, so um like even uh mum always had a veggie garden and so in food stories, it was always something um that would either be um caught or um that's what I see but coming from that um like a working family, it's like um the food on the table was um just you know substantial in the sense of you know really nice and um, wholesome um, yeah it was like a, probably lots of, of pasta sauces and um, you know like roast but the grandfather was a um, an engineer so um, we always had a good workshop so uh, early days like we'd have barbecues all the time over like on whether it was camping or when we went on holidays so lots of uh, cooking over charcoal, I remember, even at, at home. So, um, that, like, within the family, I reckon we must have 30 barbecues, I reckon, between my brothers and my, my parents and my cousins. So, it's, so yeah, not short of a, a, a barbecue at some stage or something grilled.
1: You, you mentioned you, um, about your dad being a butcher. Was there any stories from when you were young that sort of rubbed off on you in regards to um, butchery, given that the whole beast butchery is really part of what you do
0: yeah it's um it, it, it's it's good dad comes past the restaurant quite often and um you can hear a couple of old stories of uh yeah some of some of the stories that he's you yeah, know had over the times but growing up uh it was always that dad would get a lamb and break it down at home and um to you know to, whether it's um to put into the freezer or, but so butchery was yeah, yeah, around. And it didn't happen all the time, but it was probably more when I become a chef, and even with the salami weekends and everything else, that we started doing more butchery together. Um, definitely, like hunting was another aspect where uh, had a um, you know, like even shoot a rabbit and skin it and bone it, and uh, we normally do a lot of hunting down on the, uh, on the ninety mile beach. So it's uh you know, we used to go at night once we'd go spotlighting and shoot rabbits. We'd go wash them in the, the ocean and it's almost con- kind of brine them. And, and mum would actually um, break them up and cook them in actually chicken noodle soup. And then um, she'd, after um, kind of poaching them, which would make made the chicken noodle soup quite tasty as well, but then she'd uh, crumb them and fry them, which was uh, our kind of southern fried kind of style um, rabbit. So, but,
1: yeah. When did you first sort of start to get interest in interested in food and think of a career as a chef
0: I actually I went into a job probably looking um, for more of a, a laboring kind of a carpenter so I did work experience as a, a carpenter and then I actually didn't like it at all. I, <laughs> so, the family member of that I actually did my work experience with was um, his wife, actually, worked at a local restaurant and they were looking for a kitchen hand at the time. So, I actually went in and uh, found, that, found my way in as a kitchen hand. And um, then a, a, the apprentice that was there at the time was leaving and I uh, got offered an apprenticeship. And it was just a small Italian uh, restaurant in, in Maui, actually, not far. So, and then so I ended up pretty much um uh yeah just working there it's just a very small kitchen like one chef one apprenticed um so I did a four-year apprenticeship there which is a yeah it was a it, it was an amazing time so same thing just learn a lot about respect for produce and yeah, working in a small team but it was certainly eye-opening when I moved to Melbourne and worked through a few kitchens down there so and um it felt like a bit of a country apprenticeship and When I went to the city, it uh, pretty much started an apprenticeship all over again, so, (laughs) yeah. Uh, uh,
1: Tell us about that move. Um, What was it like for you to live in Melbourne, but also sort of what were the real important sort of venues and people to you as you built your career?
0: Uh, It's Yeah, I I started looking. Back then, I I looked at the age good food garden. I I wanted to work at a really um, good restaurant, but I actually went to do a few trials and I just wasn't happy and then I come across uh, there's a restaurant called Sales in the Bay in Alwood Foreshore and um, it's a seafood restaurant. Uh, yeah, amazing. They opened the doors up for me and uh, same thing started at the bottom and worked my way through the kitchen and uh, learned a lot about seafood cookery which and, you know, breaking down and doing that and making sauces from scratch and it was like a really good foundation for me, uh, really good support and then, um, at that time um, the, the uh, uh, all was actually closing in Dimaroo and Philip Michelle was opening up another restaurant at uh, Langton's which is in um, Flinders Lane so I got the opportunity to go across to work, work at Langton's um, there and that, that was another uh, uh, just a huge step for me in, in the sense of to work in such a large brigade but also, you yeah, know, a French, um, yeah, kitchen. It was, um, and Philip Michel was just a, such a gentleman and, um, yeah, the style of food that he was doing at the time was so iconic. So, yeah.
1: As you started to build your career from there, um, wh- where did you go to?
0: Once I finished, uh, Langton's, I, I actually did a little bit of agency work, at, um, just working around. So it's actually, it was funny, but to, walk into a different kitchen nearly every day was uh yeah it was yeah it was fun but also quite daunting um I remember at the time I I got to work at I think it was the the age in in town um just at at the cafeteria there and the chef asked me to make scones and I said like I come from restaurant backgrounds I I wouldn't even know how to make scones at that time so but so I had to ring around um rang mum and asked her for a scone recipe and so yeah but uh so, going from, <laughs> yeah, um, just found it uh, difficult sometimes to work in, and the um, same thing on, on the other hand, went to work at a hospital that was doing so much covers, you know, like so many preparation. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was cooking for like 400 was like the other extreme, like coming from a, a small kitchen and um, making, you know, maybe a couple litres of sauce to then making. You know, 100 or 120 litres of sauce was a uh, complete, you know, talking about blocks of butter and you know, vats of milk. So, but, um, after I finished there, I, uh, I helped a, another friend open a, a restaurant in in the CBD, and um, I actually saw that probably one of the most daunting things was a, a failure of a, a restaurant, which is um, uh, was always in the back of my mind of, um, you know, like um, how much effort it takes to. Um, not just to be a good chef, but to run a business. So, and then, so after that closed, I end up um, taking on a job as a, um, a head chef at a. That's my first head chef role at um, Kingston Heath Golf Club in in Melbourne, which is um, a very iconic um, golf club. But yeah, so that was really good. Um, working in that environment um, around the rest of the team got to play a bit of golf which was pit um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the what were the challenges of that sort of head chef role for you in that environment
0: uh, it was I was fortunate enough that uh, like there was starting off a new brigade and uh, working around uh, the style of business and service was a, definitely a lot different to what I'd come from as well. But um, same thing, I always had a, uh, the really good discipline and um, the general manager there at the time was uh, amazing um, in the sense of uh, gave me a free will in the kitchen. Um, so yeah, definitely building the team and having the support there from management was a, a great thing. I, I remember he uh, talking to me about um, cost control and lots of other aspects of business and then uh, it started to get me head around it, uh, more than just a chef but also same uh, looking looking at from a management and uh, leadership role so so yeah it was uh, it was actually uh, um, a great great time in my career to actually then um, kind of fill those gaps that um, that you know gave me more skill sets to then Continue not only to grow as a chef, but also a manager. So.
1: Tell us about the move back to the region that you grew up in. When when did that come about, and why did you do it?
0: Yeah, I've actually had um, my second uh, son um, almost due in uh, t- uh, 20, 2003. So decided uh, we both come from Gippsland, so um, to move back down. And be closer to the family was uh, pretty much the reason, and then so it was really difficult move back at that particular time. Uh, Was almost for me a bit of a time warp in the sense of uh, like coming from doing my apprenticeship in the country, so then coming back to that same environment felt like it hadn't changed in you know that, that the culinary. Um, so looking for work was really difficult to have all these skill sets and, um, and knowledge and, you know, just wanted to you know, find a kitchen to kind of cook in. So it took me a little while, but I ended up finding a, a, j- a job at, um, the Traff Pub, which is a little, um, just on, on the highway going through Trafalgar and the owners there at the time gave me some free will and I found some really nice young apprentices there. So... Um, and started to fill and build, it, build a bit of a brigade there and um, just doing really good food um, on a bistro, kind of a pub level, but um, I think that's some of the best food when it's done well. So,
1: At the top of the show, you mentioned about the closing of your restaurant in town. Tell us about um, creating it and what you did there. Yeah, so I had,
0: um, after... Um, I actually went to work at a, a private hospital for about six years, and it was a really good time. Um, I, I spent a fair bit more time at home with the, the kids, and that over that time. But I still always felt that urge that um, I hadn't opened up a, a restaurant before. And um, I had a friend of mine um, that was a chef and just coming back from um, traveling overseas, and he was really keen to open up something. He was a local boy as well. He also his apprenticeship um at the pub with me so um so we picked a location um in warrigault uh and opened up big spoon little spoon so that was 2011 i think it was uh 2012 and yeah it was it was great it's um both had a lot of energy for um doing really good food um uh we we had a Really good creative um, director to kind of help us build a brand around that. Uh, so the food, the service, uh, we picked a nice little location just in town. So um, yeah, it was it was uh, an amazing, iconic, and definitely like I was saying, there was a, there was definitely a gap, um, particularly here in West Gippsland for that style of food. And uh, the town really uh, grabbed onto it, and I loved it. It was um, uh, quite good, but. As you've probably heard before, like partnerships is one of the hardest things to work with. Um, so there was, yeah, just kind of felt like it was both of us kind of wanted to go two different directions and in the end um, decided to, um, I was, yeah, sold my part of the business to, to him and, um, yeah, we still talk and, you know, everything's fine. It's just, yeah, I think um, it was time to break, break the, yeah, so... Yeah, it, and he continued that for a little bit. Uh, uh took it, you know, kept going with that for a while, and that's when I decided to. Uh, I, and uh, I loved training and teaching and um, passing on knowledge, and I think that's um, that's me like forever, you know, like and. Uh, so I took on a job uh, as a training, like a hospitality trainer, actually. So. And at the time, there was a lot of workplace training and assessing, and I, I took that role on and pretty much traveled around the state, uh, training young apprentices. Yeah, it was, I, I enjoyed um, the passing on the knowledge. I just. Yeah, like for me, I, I think hospitality training needs to come a long way and it just was the wrong platform. I think to, I, s- I still believe apprentices should go to trade school and go through that formal training. Um, I think, yeah, just personally myself, I, I actually felt the um, hospitality training at, um, or particularly workplace training in just was not the right platform to bring new chefs into the industry. So th- I think they need to venture out and, um, yeah, go to a bit more so yeah, I actually that's when when I was training, I was actually um helping out bill um you know uh around the vineyard, whether it was washing out barrels or you know helping sorting grapes or so become very good friends with um uh the winemakers and yeah, I think that was a really good time for me in the sense that kinda um regather and regroup and kind of look at what I really wanted to do and uh, as I was saying at the start of the show that's for me, that was it was a really big moment. Saying that um, I would sit under Bill's tree and have you know uh, uh, helping make salami and quite a few other things there as well, and sit under the tree and have a beautiful lunch with friends and drinking amazing wine. And I thought to myself, this is this is the next restaurant. This is this is the the, the culture. This is is exactly what what I want to be cooking. So, and that's where the, it pretty much started. So. Um, yeah, it's like, it's so, yeah, what's it? um, for me, I think that's what cooking is, you know, like cooking uh, for enjoyment and that, um, like saying about, um, that holiday kind of feeling and sense of, it's all about the, the journey, you know, it's like,
1: uh, yeah, Nose to tail is at the heart of what you do. Tell us a bit about how you run a menu, and you know, getting in a whole pig, for instance, and utilising it across a menu.
0: Yeah. So when we first opened, it was it was a uh, pretty much a à la carte style menu, and uh, we always had an option on the menu, uh, let Trev cook for you. So, and even when we had Big Spoon, Little Spoon, we had the um, the chef's menu type type arrangement as well which gave us a little bit of you know like um something we can actually pull a menu together which is not technically on the me- on the menu so it kind of had its own uh it's a very free will of you know what whatever we wanted to kind of cook for it so and it wasn't until after covid um uh, like covid kind of helped us a little bit to say transition from the a la carte which was a huge menu in a sense of designing uh, you know, whether it was six entrees, six six mains and a few desserts to, to really condense it down. And I felt like that was the thing that um, the restaurant really, uh, that's how we can showcase not only the produce, but uh, uh, the nose to tail style cooking where we can pretty much break a pig. And um, as you know, there's only two loins and two legs and, you know, two fillets. And so ha- the so then we could then showcase those cuts on the menu and uh, multiple cuts on the menu. So uh, so then the process, as the pig come into the kitchen, uh, our young chefs here would sit down every Thursday and um, have, have a look at, and even at the engaging of um, the other chefs. And it's a really creative kind of space where we can talk about you know even if we saw something or tried something um before or even working on a different element or say let's do something different with the the pork belly this time and so yeah it it, it's so evolving in the sense of it um you can come here throughout any season and see a different product you know it's not like we're bringing up the same dishes every year and um so i i love that about cooking where even still today i walk into a a grocer and if there's a diff- an ingredient I haven't seen I, I, that's, I'll fill my basket full of that you know what I mean and um, bring it back to the kitchen and experiment and so yeah it's uh, like I said over the years like it um, went to write the menu we've got an archives there of um, since uh, 2017 of different menus and I was going through them the other day with the chefs and it's, it, it is um, quite amazing to see the, the evolution of our food and um, the other thing is the seasonal seasonality is huge for us Like you're looking over, over a vineyard and you get to see the seasons change and food come in and out and I, I think if we've got our finger on the pulse um, as soon as something comes in how excited we are about seeing that new ingredient. And then as soon as it leaves, like, you, you know, pretty much wave goodbye and wait to see it again the following season, you know, so.
1: Uh, Are there a couple of uh, pork dishes that you can run through that sort of exemplify how you utilise the whole pig in the kitchen?
0: Yeah, it's, I actually, I'm a big
1: fan of old cookbooks.
0: And, uh, like, when I, actually, one of the dishes I love, is um, when I was working with Philip Michelle, he did a, a stuffed pig and, uh, the and the force meat and the whole process of braising and picking the bones out, and um, the, the force meat was actually just uh, a little bit of pork, uh, cream, uh, shallots, um, blanched and diced mushrooms, a touch of um, uh, nutmeg and well, like a pate spice, and then that was stuffed inside the pig strutters and then wrapped in crap in it and um, braised in a really nice aromatic stock so same like that dish is um, so rewarding and it's so gelatinous and um, like a really nice winter kind of dish where it's you're looking for that but even well, like we made similar but like little boudins that we serve with the pork of that same kind of not the whole pig strutter, but of um, so there's yeah there's so many different cuts like that that you um, reference to like traditional style cooking that, and yeah, so very slow braises or um, uh, pork gels and yeah, uh, there's, there's, oh, like I said, it's, it's endless. We can, um uh, the whole cuts, but I do like, um, we've probably known the complete nose to tail kind of cooking. So the, the liver and t- that goes into a terrine or the tongue that we pickle and uh, serve just thinly shaved and kind of dressed in a vinaigrette on top of, you know, like a pork, um, you know, pork cutlet or um, uh, what else, The even the, the, the pig's head and the, the crispy fried pig's ears and, you know, like every bit of the pig can be celebrated. And since we do the complete nose-to-tail um, cooker as well, it's... Um, our stocks in the kitchen are, are pretty much depending on what's been, um, what we're boning at the time, whether it's venison or beef or lamb or pork, or that um, our sauces, uh, you can actually see the difference because um, we run kind of, uh, we do make um, different smaller sauces for different dishes we do, but our stock pot is pretty much a multi-conner stock where you, you can see the difference like when you're wanting a lot of pork that you're, you know, the gelatinous quality in your stock but also lighter than when you run um, beef or lamb. So it's, yeah, so I think that's quite seasonal as well.
1: And, uh, yeah. You you mentioned that you do a terrine. Um, I don't think we've gone, run through one before on the show. Is there one that you can take us through and, and how do you make a great terrine?
0: Well, one of my first terrines I ever made was a wild shot rabbit um yeah like i've just and the same thing we always add um like being rabbits so lean that we always add um almost 50 percent of pork meat with a nice bit of fat marbling through it so normally from the shoulder um i've actually like i love pulling out the fillets and all the line lo- and the loins and having them just like the very seared pan seared so you can get that really nice mallard kind of uh, caramelization of that and the livers, I'd always, um, same thing, you can lightly sear them off and put them through, so you just get that little bit extra flavour from them. Uh, the um, kidneys, I love rabbit kidneys, and so they've always been used as like a garnish down the middle of the terrine. So, so it's pretty much the force meat of the rabbit terrine would be just minced pork and all the legs, the front legs and the back legs, all deboned and ran through the mincer. And then uh, you can hand dice all the garnish, all the little bits and pieces that you want through that. So like nicely sweated up um, a shallot with, uh, I normally add a little bit of uh, pate or terrine spice to that. And then uh, sometimes, depending on what terrine we're making, a little bit of the cream um through it just to lighten it and help bind it a little bit. So you'd mix it similar to your wood, any kind of. Um, hamburger or kind of sausage you know to, to slightly work it a little bit and then the art is um, when you go to line the terrine so pretty much you can do a rustic terrine where everything's just minced and put through or you can garnish a really nice way you, you know you put like a nice little layer uh, you layer the line the terrine mold with whether like I said at the start of the um, podcast the um, nice bit of back fat or uh, pancetta or, or you know bacon, um, ox tongue or you know any kind of so you line the terrine mould and then go through um, delicately placing a little bit of force meat and you know having your loins and some other um, you know garnish that you really want to feature in the terrine and and then um, yeah lightly poach it uh, in a, the terrine mould in um, in an oven until it's cooked through. Um, and then that's it once it uh, normally the is actually the seasoning is super important that um, when you try the meat of uh, the, the, the force meat before cooking it, it should have that nice saltiness to it so because it is served uh, cold um, or you know, not cold but um, nice temperature that the flavoring is right but the, the jelly is the the thing I love after cooking a terrine. So once once it's set in the, you can actually tell whether it's a you know the, the seasonings on point when you're just picking the jelly out of off off the terrine. So, but then yeah, it's same like uh, I always find um, once you've made the terrine, it's then uh, all the other condiments and that you put with it to kind of lift it and highlight the actual dish itself. So it's um yeah i think um once again very seasonal depending on what's around at the time um like i said uh, uh, mum's always had a good veggie garden and she's always had plums and peaches and nectarines and um so depending on what's uh, seasonal at the time um would be what would serve with 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 the terrain depending on season yeah
1: with this immersion into sort of seasonal cooking and whole beast butchery and cooking as well, has, has it changed your approach to food and cooking?
0: It has. Yeah. It's like I said, we go go through a journey every, uh, like it, it starts so deep in the sense of uh, like we, we end up with produce here all the time of the best quality because we are um, cooking seasonally. It's, uh, it's, I have come from lots of kitchens, like I've said before, and it, um I I definitely find that uh I've spoken a fair bit about this with our young chefs as well but uh, since we are uh, talking to the producer or the the grower or the maker uh, you have so much more respect for the produce and then so when it comes to the kitchen um it feels like there is that connection to uh, those ingredients so and that there's nothing better than having um, or cooking for those makers, and um, I, we get so much feedback from them as well. And it, it is—it's it, almost nurturing in the sense of knowing that you're—you know—like you're paying respect to produce. Whether it's—you know—I um, think that uh, deep down, I think is probably the most rewarding thing about cooking with such high quality ingredients. Is it's—we really don't need to do much at all. It's. Um, yeah, it's, it, you're actually cooking with that um, passion that I think um, gets the, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, it's it, it's getting that full attention of making sure that you know, how we treat it and how we, we cook it is, um, yeah, it, it's always going to be the, the hero, you know, so. Well,
1: you're doing amazing things there in regional Victoria. What do you love about what you do?
0: Well, look, like, oh, I think I've covered that pretty pretty heavy. <laughs> it is uh, like I've uh, the passion I have um, not only just for um, cooking and doing what we do here at Hobbit. It's it is uh, the team that I work around every day that we come into the kitchen and um, we cook, you know cook and enjoy stories and that whole uh, I think it is um, a very family kind of orientated um, environment where it, it is. I think uh, pushing ourselves in the sense of, you know, we've got so much opportunity there to cook what we really want to enjoy. Um, I love old cookbooks and um, reading and a bit of an old, (laughs) bit of a dinosaur when it comes to that. Um, But I I still love flicking through books and having a look. And I think um, back from my time as a young chef, like there wasn't uh, a lot of, Probably Instagram and all the social media they have these days, but and looking deeper into more my love for you know provincial French cooking and you know yeah uh, you know, so I've got some really old cookbooks there and I'm still really I feel that's my goal is you know I like to cook honestly you know I like just um, the foundations of cooking and and still you know through our kitchen I think um, we look at how we're doing things and um, improving our cooking ability and yeah so looking at looking at produce and looking at the it changes all the time as well so that's that's a thing it's um it's something we're doing this week we 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 uh change it up and we'll be cooking something next week so I think it's evolving in that and I think yeah that's really I think how I, I wouldn't do it any other way so it, it's it, it's hard work and I think as a chef it's um working on new dishes and um, going onto the menu almost immediately is probably a little bit vulnerable in the sense of, you know, we don't have a test kitchen or we don't have, it is uh, cooking and um, using our ability to uh, to cook well, I think is, you know, and yeah, like we, even once we've designed a dish, it's that fine tuning and um, you know, tasting and, you know, like really enjoying what we're cooking, if it, you know, you know making those micro adjustments all the time so
1: well trevor it's an absolute honor to have you on the crackling today to hear just a part of your story um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon
0: no worries. thank you very much for the
1: opportunity this is the crackling a deep in the weeds production in partnership with pork i'm anthony Huckstep. stay tuned as we catch up with some of australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.